0: You know, I don't know Paul Manafort. I think I may have met him once or twice. Uh, But I sat here behind the microphone talking to you about how repulsed I was about the way the man was treated. Paul Manafort, how are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well, Mark, and you're you're right. We've only met a couple of times, but I think I know you real well because for a year in solitary confinement, I listened to you every night, and you gave me hope.
0: Oh, thank you. That really uh, makes me feel great. You know, what they did to you was so disgusting, Um, and this book is so, so important for the American people, particularly now. It couldn't be more prescient. And more relevant, the book is political prisoner, persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced. Let me let's break this down a little bit. You were put in solitary confinement. That was intended to break you, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. They. I mean, when they arrested me, they put me on home confinement with a ten million dollar bond. Ten million dollars for a fare violation, and uh, and they put a gag order on me. So I couldn't talk and they, they put that bond because they didn't think I could, I could make it. And it took me four tries, three of that packages were rejected. But the fourth try, I was able to cobble together a package that Berman Jackson couldn't reject because she had proved all of the pieces of the three vs pre and I put them together to make what I needed. So when they did that, when I did that, they saw that they would have to let me get out of home confinement. They Came up with this phony witness charge, witness tampering charge, and had me thrown into jail directly from court. And uh, and they were going to throw me to the DC <laughs> prison, um, but uh, my lawyers objected, and to, to thanks to the I, so I guess people at the Justice Department, uh, they sent me not to a great place, I mean this prison out in the, on the Eastern Shore of, uh, of Virginia. Three hours away from my lawyers, where I couldn't talk with them very much, in a cell that was eight by twelve, no windows, you know, a, a slot for their food, and uh, and I wasn't able to exercise or go outside at all, so it wasn't fun.
0: They really wanted you to confess the things that you hadn't done, and they really wanted you to get Trump, didn't they?
1: That, Mark, that's exactly right. In the book, I actually detail because. <laughs> After the first trial, when, you know, I, I get a second trial coming up three weeks later in D.C. against a hostile judge. Uh, and when we tried to pick a D.C. jury, they gave us, and you would appreciate this, 120 pool juror of jurors, 120 people to pool for because they, they, we complained we wanted to change the venue. We said I couldn't get a fair trial. They wouldn't do that. And of the 120, we, we, we had a questionnaire that they allowed us to ask a broad number of questions. One judge, one juror we thought could be fair. Over 90 of them, and I talked about this in the book, said they hate Trump and they hate me. Uh, And so I realized I needed to cut a deal, not to give them anything, but to just not go to trial again, because the the second trial was where the forfeiture actions were being taken, and they went back 20 years of my life, gobbling everything up, things I gave to my kids. And so I cut a deal to get the properties of my kids out of the package. and as a result of that, I spent 50 hours in front of Weissman and Andres and that group, never intending to tell them anything but the truth. You know, while they were gleefully thinking I was going to spill the beans. But in the course of that 50 hours, it's a long way to answer your question, I, I was able to decipher what Weissman's theories were on on Russian collusion. What his motive, he thought our motives were, what the links were. And they were just crazy ideas. They're just way out of ideas, and I, and I worked through them all in the book, centering on Stone de- dealing with uh, with the Russians and WikiLeaks, Trump telling Stone when to uh, when to have the hack documents released. Me communicating to the Russians of, of what's going on, and it was with no evidence, zero evidence. But and he wanted me to corroborate these things, and I wouldn't to the point that, you know, he was badgering me. Uh, he he tried to bring five more lie to uh, to FBI agents, charges against me. I said, you can bring them. I'm telling the truth. They never brought them. Um, but it was all meant to get Trump. And mm-hmm. in the end, what I ended up doing, which Weissman did not appreciate, is I put on his record, in the special counsel notes, the case for no Russian collusion. And 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 the case for Hillary Clinton's being the the, the person committing the uh, the collusion with the Ukrainians and with the Russians.
0: You know, Paul Manafort, when you're in front of a jury that is not a jury of your peers, when you're in front of an Obama judge who obviously hates your guts, and then you got a guy like Weissman who is a legal hitman. You must have said to yourself, my God, I've been a conservative Republican all my life. I've worked on behalf of candidates like Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. How the hell can this be happening to me? It had to go through your and, mind. Uh, Is this America or what?
1: Yeah, And having spent a career overseas, of fighting the Soviet Union and the Russians, and then you know, and in Ukraine, where you know, that was part of Weissman's crazy theory, I was the person who got Ukraine to change their laws and their economic structure to apply to be part of Europe. And it was all publicly mm-hmm. known. And so I, uh, it, it was so absurd, Mark, that I said to myself, I'm just going to rely on my faith, my family, and that Donald Trump will do the right thing when this is over with at some point in time. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I just you know, lived in the, in the moment. L- literally, I'm not exaggerating. I listen to you every night you gave me hope because you were carrying the case you wouldn't strong entity um and and it got me through a very difficult time to the point that now i've moved on
0: and you and i never spoke right your lawyers and i never Never spoke spoke. i just knew it
1: yeah we yeah no we we met a few times you know during the reagan days
0: but But i mean during the course of all this stuff
1: no we didn't never in fact I, w- I tried to write you a letter, and they wouldn't let me send it to you.
0: <laughs> Who? You mean the the prison wouldn't let you send it to me?
1: Oh yeah, no. My, my all my phone calls, all my incoming and outgoing mail was monitored. I mean, uh, they told me they said there's not <laughs> one thing that's going out or one call you're going to have except to your lawyers that we're not going to look at and listen to. Um, and, and I, I was and the letter that I was writing was just telling you what I just said to you now inspirational you were for me and how much i appreciated you saying some of the things you were saying it wasn't like i was telling you secret information or railing against weissman but they, they wouldn't let that let it go all
0: right paul i want you to hang on we really only got started here this book is absolutely fascinating and truly important for everybody listening political prisoner persecuted prosecuted but not silenced And you can get it on any of my platforms, on Twitter and elsewhere, as well as Amazon.com. We'll be right back with Paul Manafort. Mark Levin, America's Fate
2: tank And you can call him at 877-381-3811.
0: Our special guest, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Manafort. The book is Political Prisoner. I mean, think about that, because he was. Persecuted, prosecuted but not silenced. Paul Manaford, tell us a little bit, as you do in the book, about this guy, Weissman, I call him, and uh, how he treated you and what he was trying to pursue and all that sort of stuff.
1: Well, I mean, he was a bully. I mean, that's correct. I mean, you call him a pit bull. He was a bully. Uh, he was very arrogant. He had theories that were not based in fact, but that he had just created out a full cloth. Um, and if you disagreed with him, he would beat you back and forth. And in the 50 hours that I spent with him, you know, he wasn't showing me documents. I, a, I talk about it in the book. He was trying to make somebody who had worked with me for 10 years, Konstantin Kalemnik, into a Russian spy. In fact, he sealed all the documents, and they're still sealed that showed that Kalemnik was a U.S. government asset. Uh, and, and he even had a code name from the U.S. embassy in Kiev to protect him on the cable traffic. Uh, but he was he, he was trying to make Constantine the link, and he, he had this theory that Trump was going to free, or, or give Eastern Europe to Russia. And I talk about the details of that in the book. There was no basis for that. He just came up with that because Russia wanted Eastern Europe, actually Eastern Ukraine. Actually, they wanted all of Ukraine, as we've seen in the last several months. Mm-hmm. But he had no evidence of any of this, and he and he, and he wanted me to say I had meetings with Klimk about it. And he said you had a meeting in Madrid in in March of 2017 after Trump was president uh, to to pass along uh, how to get this done, right? And I said. Well, I was in Madrid in May two. And this is after I'd been in solitary for like eight months. I said that I was, in fact, uh, in Madrid, but it had nothing to do with Constantine, nothing to do with Trump. It had to do with a personal thing, a friend of mine, and he was getting married. He said, well, what if I showed you a tick- Is the ticket of Clement being in, in Madrid at the same time? I said, well, that would surprise me. But I didn't meet with him if he was there. And they said, well, if he was there, and this is where he started to play the mind games with me, and, he, and it was late in the afternoon. And he started playing the mind games over trying to get me to say, play the what-if game. And I didn't, but that was when I realized, you know, how he was going to come at me for the rest. This was early in the 50 hours. I was going to come at me for the rest of the, the whatever amount of time I was going to be with him. And that's what he did. He would have these disparate things he'd throw in, trying to get me to say that uh, Trump was, uh, was uh, you know, was aware of the release of the WikiLeaks docu- hack documents, you know, before they they were uh, released and in, 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 before the Democratic convention, and I would say no, and then he would say, "Well, what, did you know this that or whatever?" which he would just be making it up. They weren't. They're were not. They're not. But I couldn't. He didn't show many documents. I, I was fatigued from uh, at the end of usually these days. I was I was not in good health at that time because of solitary confinement. Um, and, and then he would browbeat my lawyers that I was lying. And that was, and that he was just going to break off the stuff. When I when I told my lawyers to cut a deal with the special counsel's office, I said, "Look, don't fight for a five K letter, because I'm not going to get one, because I'm not going to give them what they want. So it's not important to me uh, that that I get a letter. All I care about is protecting my kids' assets and getting them out of the forfeiture. You could take my assets and put them in instead. Um, uh, and, and but that was the kind of guy he was. And, and then he would bring in you know, Jeannie Reed to, to take a piece of it. So she could try and be the good, good guy, you know, the good guy, bad guy game. Uh, mm-hmm. But that didn't work. It was just so transparent. Uh, and then frankly, with the motions, he, he, he didn't show up very often in Virginia because Ellis knew with the game, judge Ellis didn't like him. Uh, and, but he showed up every time in DC because Bernie Jackson, it was just fun over him. And, uh, uh, and his motions were always creating images of me that were not just as a criminal, but as a despicable human being. Um, and that was, that was an M.O. But yet they would then leak with me not being able to to respond to the media. They would leak all kind of fake things to the, to the press. And, conv- and as I say, they convicted me in the court of public opinion way before I ever got to a trial. Which is, which is, you know, why I never really had a chance.
0: And I remember this was one of the things that infuriated me, this gag rule. I said, what the hell do you have a gag rule for? Why do you need a gag rule? Let the man speak out. Let his lawyer speak out. Let the American people know. You know, that's the point of a public trial, so to speak, or a public criminal justice process. It's so the public can watch what's taking place and know what's taking place. But I found her her rulings to be outrageous which I pointed out over and over again because they were outrageous. I want to ask you this. You see what's happening with Trump again. You see, you have a search warrant, which I think violates the fourth amendment given its breadth. They're going through his house. They go through his wife's closet. I'm sure they did exactly the same thing to you. They keep leaking stuff. Their arguments don't even gel. In other words, one day there's one reason for doing it. One day there's another reason. And there's the media pouncing. There is the media pouncing. You ever sit back and think to yourself, this whole system is screwed up. It's screwed up. The prosecutors have this kind of power.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the game, I, mean, I, I actually, in the book, talk about what I have heard you speak about in the past, too, sort of the circular game that, that the prosecutors and the, and the media, the social media play, you know, so that you know, with, you know, they're convicting Trump right now of espionage. You know, I mean that's that's what's been going on for the last week. It's not working. Mm-hmm. I mean, the American people are finally on to the game, and uh, and I think that's why they took the desperate actions they did this week. I mean, as I've been saying to people, you know, they talked about January sixth being a threat to democracy. This is a way bigger threat to democracy. Going after mm-hmm. your political opponents, this is third world kind of uh, behavior, and and you know, interestingly, in in Ukraine. When Yanukovych went out indicted his political opponent, which I was totally against, although she was very guilty, even her own president, Yushchenko, uh, said she was guilty. I, I, I fought Yanukovych, lost on it. Biden, representing the Obama administration, came to, the, uh, to Ukraine and publicly chastised Yanukovych and said, you don't build the democracy this way. This is a tin horn democracy when you go after your own political opponents. I mean, yeah, and now I guess he's trying to make America into the 10-hour democracy that it's becoming uh, because that's exactly what he's doing.
0: And that ridiculous first impeachment was the claim that he was trying to get uh, Biden right. in, in trouble. So, right. I mean, they, they do what they accuse other people of doing. Let me ask you this because I'm sure the audience wants to know: you were in bad health there for a period of time. Was your life under. Th- Really on the line at some
1: point? It was. I mean, I'd always been in good shape. You know, not being able to exercise, the food was bad. I mean, I never had gout, but I got gout, and I was worried about getting diabetes, which fortunately I didn't get. Um, Yeah, I tried to change the diet of the menu I was getting. I was asked for the 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 diabetes uh, menu, figuring that would be, you know, have less problems. But he said, well, you don't really, that's not going to help you because it's just the same food, but less portions. (laughs) So that's what was going, it caused me pain. I couldn't walk. I mean, it was so severe. I mean, I've recovered now, um, but, uh, you know, but that, that didn't bother. But Biden, I mean, uh, Weissman brought me into the grand jury, you know, in the wheelchair, the whole bit.
0: How's your family?
1: The family's strong. I mean, yeah. my wife has been fantastic. She, she and my kids hung in there. They, they, you know, they believed in me. And uh, and, and the, you find out who your friends are when you go through something like this. And my family and my friends have never been stronger. And my faith, the book, by the yeah. way. I mean, what's that? And my faith. I mean, the way yes. I got through solitary was I decided I mean, I had to use all my skills as a strategist and build a program of how I was going to build every day. Uh, which was founded on prayer and reading the Bible, you know, understanding the, the suffering the way Saint Paul talked about it, and then relying on knowing my family was there for me, and uh, and that one way or another, I, I would get through this.
0: This is Paul Manafort. I'm speaking to author, a political prisoner, persecuted, prosecuted, but not silenced. Last question: Are many people willing to talk to you? and talk to you about this book and give you an opportunity to speak?
1: Um, It's growing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what they did to President Trump last week has created an aura of interest on this that might not have existed otherwise, because I deal with these very issues in my book, and I, I predict some of these same behaviors. I finished the book at the end of the first year of Biden's administration, so I, I get into a lot of the excesses of his, his, his White House and talk about them and predict some of these same things happening. Um, and so as people are now reading the book, I'm finding growing interest.
0: Very, very good. Well, I hope our folks in the audience will order a copy immediately. It's Pol- Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but Not Silenced. It is a truly compelling book. It's a very, very important book. And Paul Manafort, I want to thank you Very, very much, and I hope to meet you one day.
1: So do I, Mark, and I want to thank you very much for getting me
0: through it. God bless you, my friend, and your family. You take care of yourself. Thank you. We'll be right back. Mark Levin.
3: Hi, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Opposing Points podcast. My special guest today is Paul Manafort, author of Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. As campaign chairman for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, Paul put into place the structure that delivered the nomination and general election victory to Donald Trump. I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. Thanks for watching. Hey, Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing well, David. Thank you. Good. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to see a man so vilified, you know, by the media. Um, there were probably a lot of uh, things going on, a basically universally dominated narrative across all media outlets. Um, and I'm curious um, about how it felt to kind of watch your image, knowing that knowing yourself and looking at how the media was per- portraying you, you know, did you ever, did you find comfort in kind of knowing who you are or, or were, there ever, were there ever times where it, it kind of hit you, um, you know, and, and you lost a little bit of hope? I never lost hope,
2: but I can't say that I wasn't confused and, uh, and stressed. <laughs> uh, I did know who I, who I was and am. Uh, I knew what they were saying wasn't true. Uh, it felt like a movie. I felt like I was watching a movie that was you know, a, a, a drama narrative, which was not true, but I was afraid that where this was going, I wasn't going to like the ending. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, uh, that sort of made it surreal. Um, what I couldn't understand at the time, uh, especially in 2016 during the campaign and uh, leading up to Trump taking office, was how... There would be this universal networking going on that uh, would be keying off of facts that were false. Uh, there were a few of the reporters who would write stories about me that never, you know, I didn't expect anything other than that. They didn't, they didn't care about the truth in the past and they weren't going to care about it now or then. But there were reporters who I knew who were friends of mine, or at least I thought were, or at least were, were honest reporters who knew the kinds of things I had been doing in my political career around the country and around the world, who were writing about the Russian narrative as if my role in it was real. And they knew better than that. Um, And so that's what was disappointing. Uh, And then as we got into, uh, into the Trump administration, you know, I always thought, okay, this is politics, the campaign will be over, Trump's elected, now we'll move on, and, yeah, you know, that's politics is over, we deal with governing. But it, we never switched off. Uh, the uh, the woke left, which controlled the Democratic network at that point in time, and the Obama-Hillary cabal, <laughs> were intent on destroying Donald Trump and everybody around him, um, which was a new, new thing. I mean, it was a new experience. So when I hear about this, Hypocrites talking about January 6th being the biggest threat to democracy. They're the same people who did everything they could to destroy Donald Trump's presidency based on a hoax that they knew was a lie. And, uh, and so, but as we got into that, when they, when Michael Flynn was, was attacked for meeting with ambassadors in his role as the designee national security advisor, I knew the game wasn't going to stop. And then when, when sessions, uh, recused himself i was concerned that was the first point when i thought this thing could go on for a while um and then of course when the special counsel was appointed uh yeah i, I mean I, I knew we were in a new place and i knew it was not a good place because special counsels are toxic and they what they're appointed for and what they end up doing usually are two different things which was exactly true in this case as well uh yeah, the whole concept of an independent counsel law was not renewed by the Congress because of the abuses of the independent councils. And so when Mueller was appointed as a special counsel, which meant he had the authority of a U.S. attorney, not of an independent counsel, uh, and treated and acted as if he was an independent counsel and got away with it, is when I realized that the, the system was totally caught.
3: Yeah, I mean, We see this in journalism now. Basically, if if you take a side that's not the you know narrative, you get kind of tossed aside. And some people have managed to continue their integrity, like Glenn Glenn Greenwald, for example, Matt Taibbi. Um, They've been on the right side of this thing, although they're viewed as classically um, liberal people. And there are certain things that are just you cannot write about um, until it's accepted. For example, um, like you know, masking children. We didn't say there would be any side effects or learning loss or anything. And now we're dealing with that now. And it's, it's suddenly allowed to be written about that this is yeah. Uh, happening.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous time in, in journalism. Um, you know, I saw this, I, I read I write about that in the book and the concerns I have on that specific point you just made mentioned, but I saw it early on and I couldn't believe it in the campaign in 2016 when uh, J- Jim Rudenberg wrote an article from the front page of the New York Times. And in that article, he talks about how he no longer could be objective as a journalist. And he's, as an editor now, it's his, as a reporter now, it's his job to expose the danger that Donald Trump uh, poses to the American people. I mm-hmm. couldn't believe that story. I mean, it was a front page story. So it's not on the editorial page, but it be, it was a harbinger of what was to come mm-hmm. and it's where media is today, where they think they're the ju- 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 uh, prosecutor, judge, and jury of what is the truth and what is uh, susceptible to talk about. And Twitter is the means by which they gain their fame. Uh, and that's a very dangerous thing. Now, I think it's starting to get exposed. I mean, media is not looked at around the, you know, in the United States anymore as a credible source of news, as crazy as that sounds. Um, and people are basically going to the networks that, the, that they have their position, reflect their positions. But that's a, that's a bad thing. That's a dangerous thing, and I talk about that in the book. Uh, we have to find a way to get around that. Uh, and what has surprised me when I was growing up in politics in the United States, I mean, there were a lot of moderate to liberal journalists who would talk about their their positions, but they'd reflect the other side as well. The Al Hunts, the the the. the the Shields, the Mark Shields of this world, uh, they I would have expected mm-hmm. should have called the journalism out for what it is, what it was becoming in in 2016, 17. But they sat back and let it happen, and that surprised me. That surprised. me.
3: I think you hit the nail on the head as as far as the respective news outlets. Um, I'm I'm a millennial, and and I've kind of always been into politics, just kind of looking at. All the sides and pieces and examining them and making decisions for myself but i think a lot of people kind of have their beliefs led by their feelings toward things and then those people are naturally going to gravitate towards either msnbc or fox and it creates i have a fear that we have an the polarization in this country is going to get even worse the journalistic standards are just going to get even worse there's going to be you know right-wing media that that left-wing media and they'll both be like well it's all fake news and, and what we have left is we don't, people don't have a sense of what the truth is.
2: Well, you know, I don't think it'd get worse. <laughs> it's pretty bad, I think. Yeah. But I think what's gonna happen, what is happening is local news is becoming more relevant. Uh, and, and when you think about what's going on with the uh, school board meetings and the, and the, and the, 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 the crime, crime in the streets and the borders, the the pressure on the national media is being driven by what's happening in those local scenes that mm-hmm. they can't ignore, and uh, and that's hopefully going to be a mechanism by which we'll be able to bring some sense of I won't say uh, objectivity but news coverage uh, to to this to the story. And I talk about that in the book. And my concern is in the you look at the Biden administration now, and it is. Its starting point was at the worst place of the left when, when Obama ended. I mean, so it's gotten worse because of, Obama, of Biden uh, tolerating, I mean I, to tolerating the Department of Justice calling parents terrorists. I mean, it's a crazy thing, creating an office of disinformation and homeland security. I mean, these are dangerous things to our Constitution. If Republicans had done something like the, that, you know, we would be pillied and, and you'd be re- reading about it every single day. What I don't understand is how the the ACLU uh, and and moderate Democrats can accept those kinds of of infringements on our constitutional rights. But they do. And it's going to be incumbent upon us as Republicans and conservatives win this election in November and to bring things back to to some sense of center. I'm not saying that uh, we've got to expose the assaults on our freedoms. We have to do that. And if we don't, if we only focus on Hunter Biden uh, or Joe Biden, and not on the the infringement by the Department of Justice on, uh, on parents and 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 conservative organizations, then we will be then we should be thrown out as well.
3: Mm-hmm. And one of one of the prompts for your new book coming out, uh, "Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, but Not Silence," uh, is that everything most Americans think they know about you is false. Um, and as I said before. A lot of the American public assumes pretty bad things about you. <laughs> um, so, what were what were the uh, the falsehoods exactly told about you? Because I think there were a list of things that you were you know kind of tried for or, or convicted uh, well, of, or how that was working.
2: Well, yeah, there there I mean, it'd be a lot more than it took a couple of minutes. I have to talk to you about it. But I mean, what <laughs> they did. Ta- First of all, you have to understand tactically what they did, because then you appreciate what they did to me. yeah I mean, they, this, this, uh, the tsunami was, you know, when it started, really after Trump was not, was elected, it was impossible to talk into. Uh, then he had uh, the House Intelligence Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee doing investigations and dripping out uh, 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 misinformation about my historical background in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, when they ended up indicting me, and, and so because I was sort of a target of the investigation, before the special counsel was elected uh, appointed, I had to be careful about what I said. My lawyers said you can't really be talking in the public too much. And My point was, look, these are lies. I, I mean, I, there's a record that I could point to, and they wanted me to save it for the for the committee hearings. Mm-hmm. The committee's never interested in talking to me. The House committee, the Senate committee, they didn't want to talk to me because they knew the, they knew the truth already. Um, and then when Mueller was appointed and they went after me, they put a gag order on me. And I, so I couldn't talk. And then all of a sudden, the drips out of government and anonymous sources to favored media types created this image of me, so that which Weissman understood try Manafort in the court of public opinion, then we'll get him in, a, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the courtroom of to justice. And that's what they did. And, and because of the gag order, I, there was nothing I could do to protect my net myself, even to the point where when they were talking about uh, one of the most obedient things was saying I was you know, a link to Russia. I spent my whole political career internationally and domestically fighting Soviet Union, fighting Russia uh, in, in Ukraine. And when a foreign a, a foreign service officer in the government of Ukraine, who I had been working with during the Yanukovych presidency, wanted to write an op-ed piece for the Kiev Journal in, in, in Kiev, uh, saying that Paul Manafort not only was it pro-Russian, he helped us prepare to become part of Europe. Well, he, sent, he this was his idea. He wrote the article. He sent it to me. He said, I'm publishing this article. There were several things that were just factually wrong in the article. Uh, nothing important but factually. So I corrected them. Mm-hmm. Washington used that and said, I was trying to violate the gag order. Now, it wasn't my article. I, it wasn't my idea. It was the Kiev Post in Kiev. I mean, there was not going to be any jury selected in Kiev for Paul Manafort, Uh, but it was meant to intimidate me so that I couldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't do anything here in the United States, even though the the gag order was constitutionally questionable. uh, uh, There would have been a lot of money and everything else. And I was, my money was being drained on my legal case. but tactically they understood that. And then they had the judge who basically could have been sitting at the prosecutor's desk uh, saying to me that if there's one more slip like this, I'm going right to jail. That was the way they intimidated me. So, so the process, and I talk about all of that in the book. But the process, the issues that they exposed. I mean, I was pro Russia. I mean, and that Ukraine was pro was during the my the term of the candidate I like the president was pro Russia. Historically, one hundred percent false. In fact, we worked with the U.S. government. We worked with the Obama administration, and we worked with the EC to do all the changes that were necessary in Ukraine. Legally, economically, regulatory wise, to comport with Ukraine's uh, uh, structures with European requirements. This was Mm -hmm. all public news. It was all public news. Uh, And yet, to say that I was working with a pro Russian uh, uh, president was 100% incorrect. Um, And they knew it, as an example. Then, on the fair violations, when they indicted me, what they indicted me for was violating the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act. And they indicted me criminally, which hadn't been done. I think it was done once in the whole history of the Act, going back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, and they indicted me on something that I already worked out with the Department of Justice, the fair unit. And, and without no penalties, no civil, civil uh, 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 judgments. It was worked out the proper way, the way it always was. And there was, and, and I did what the, what the Department wanted me to do. Weissman nixed that deal took control of the matter, and then created the, the, the fake violation and, and then tacked onto to that uh, money laundering. So he made it a conspiracy, tacked on money laundering, so he could go back my whole life and get, try and capture all the money I'd made for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that it was, again, that kind of violation of the, of the standards. I go on and on and on, but this gives you a sense of it all. Yeah. The... the, the uh, the the foreign bank accounts. I gave all the foreign bank accounts to the Department of Justice and the FBI in 2014, helping them on an investigation they were doing against other people, and to show them how the whole process worked. There, there was nothing being hidden. I literally gave them the names, the accounts, and showed them the way things would flow. Mm-hmm. In the book, I go through all of this kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, but what what the experience taught me was when you're in the crosshairs, and you have a media that's willing to be compliant to whatever the woke agenda is, it's almost impossible to fight back in the current environment.
3: Yeah. I mean, what's 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 also scary, and maybe you had some thoughts on this as well, as you went through that kind of what we call the due process here. You know, you you are a well-known figure. You have probably more resources than the average person or the average American. And it just kind of I don't know if you would agree with this, but I mean, how is the average they can easily be destroyed? I mean with that, with most people don't have the resources when they're being uh, gone after.
2: And I talk about that in the book a lot, you're right. Uh, and in fact, th- th- there's a section in the book where I deal with my time in prison mm-hmm. and in uh, dealing with a lot of people, a lot of prisoners who were abused by the system. They got, got double teamed by federal prosecutors and state prosecutors and were put in prison for terms that should have been, you know, one of the percent of what it was for nonviolent crimes. Uh, but they were uneducated or they were poor. Uh, uh, they were, a lot of them were, were minorities. And, uh, and they never had a chance. And I talk about that. And, but then I also talk about how they're not even helped by the prison system to prepare for reentry. Uh, you, know, we give the, the, you, you look at the laws and the, and the programs of the BOP, they look great, but they don't exist mm-hmm. it's on paper. And I talk about that and things that need to be done there. I mean, one of the not appreciated uh, uh, things about the Trump administration is Trump was a hero to the black and Hispanic p- people in prison uh, because of what he did dealing with the First Step Act and in trying to release all nonviolent criminals from ex- excessive uh, penalties. I mean, he, he showed way more sensitivity to their their, their plight than any of the woke left or the AOCs or anybody in Washington had, had or, or have today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the Biden administration, the champion of the, of the black Hispanic community has done nothing for them. Uh, and, and when compared to Trump, it's like this. And, and mm-hmm. I talk about that in the book as well.
3: Okay. And uh, one of the interesting, uh, I guess, Bedfellows, I've, I found is that AOC was actually advocating against it because you were put in solitary confinement and she was a, a voice against that. Um, do you ever find that kind of strange? <laughs> uh,
2: it was well, it was appreciated actually because it showed the, the craziness of it all. Uh, because she was right in the concept, she wasn't supporting me, but she was supporting the concept of yeah. putting somebody into solitary confinement, which is inhumane. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was I was put in there for my protection, supposedly. Um, and it was, protection was a 9 by 12 cell, no windows. The door had a slot for the food to be put through. Uh, no ability to, to exercise and do anything outside of the room. Only exp- time I ever got out was to deal with my lawyers. But I was four, and a half, four hours away from my lawyers. It's where they sent me in, uh, in, the, in the northern neck of, uh, of D.C., covered to Maryland. So I wasn't able to meet with them regularly. Um, there was no way it was for my protection. It was meant to break me when I ultimately did get sentenced and went to prison, I was put in the general population. I had no problem surviving in the general population. with And I wouldn't have had with, if I'd been in the general population during the, the pre-sentencing period as well, but it was a tactic by the Weissman and the process and the government to, uh, to break me, to give them Donald Trump, which is what my whole uh, case was about.
3: And how did you get, th- get through that personally?
2: Well, you have to sort of live in the present. You can't look at the past. You can't look at the inhumanity of it. You can't look in the future. You have to live in the present. And so between my faith, my family, the fact that I knew who I was, and mm-hmm. this way, regardless of what would happen to me, it was wrong, and I and I, and I shouldn't feel bad about myself, badly about myself. So I, with, with that as a framework, I then put a schedule together every day. And whether it was reading or doing exercises in the cell or my prayer time and uh and I built a day, a structure of a day, mm-hmm. uh including practice what I could do and prepare for my case, so that the time went actually fast. And there were days I didn't have enough time to do everything that was on my schedule because I had a schedule. And by doing that, you put you 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 get out from the oppression, oppressiveness of it, and uh and are able to be. I don't want to say productive but uh, but in a sense productive with how you handle your time and what you get to achieve with it
3: mm-hmm. yeah um, And, and I, th- I think that's really helpful advice to to people as well um just if you can you, you can use that same advice to get through any any kind of hard times that people are going through you have your your order and stuff like that right. um, what we're also seeing now is uh or or what we were seeing and what we're still seeing is is a lot of people on the left and some on the right are very obsessed with you know russia and trump and using russia as the strategy to take down trump that he needed russia to win um as the you know campaign manager how did you had what what is with that strategy why are they so obsessed with
2: it? Well, you know the first time i heard that was right after our republican convention trump was the nominee and the democratic convention was the following week so we ended on thursday friday trump went out to the campaign trail i went back to, uh, to New York. Uh, the Democrats started their convention that following Sunday, that Sunday. So Reince Priebus, the chairman of the RNC, was gonna have what we call a bracketing operation set up for Philadelphia to track what the Democrats were saying and doing. Uh, and asked me to do a press conference with him on Sunday before the Democratic convention to announce the bracketing process and to kick it off. And so I said, okay, fine. During my, my comments in the Q&A afterwards, one of the reporters asked me, well, today, Robbie Mook said uh, that uh, there's Russian collusion going on with the Trump campaign uh, to help him be elected president. And what what do you know about this? And I looked at it, I turned to and said, and I started laughing. I said, well, this is ridiculous. I said, this is, if, if what Mooks is saying, he really said, because I don't know, I didn't hear him say it, then this tells me that they're really desperate uh, and that they've lost control of anything that's relevant they think they can win the election on now i said that as an absurdity but in fact i was exactly right Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and we now know thanks to the durham investigation that in early july uh john brennan briefed obama that the clinton campaign was going to start a fake russian narrative before the republican convention Uh, to deflect from her server problems and her other problems. Uh, We also know now that despite the fact that the White House knew about this, the CIA knew about this, the FBI opened up Crossfire Hurricane at the end of July, right after our convention, uh, to do an investigation using uh, law enforcement resources on a narrative that they all knew was false. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it grew from there. So the whole house of cards the whole hoax on the American people, the whole system of lies started with everybody in the, in the democratic system being aware it was not true. And, and yet they built and built and built because they one didn't want to elect Donald Trump. And then when he was elected, they couldn't understand it. Uh, and they were going to do everything they could to destroy his presidency. The biggest threat to democracy is not what January 6th represented. It's what those people who are now claiming January 6th represented the threat did for five years uh to destroy the president elected duly elected president of the united states
3: right and and so they get
2: the process and this is important mm -hmm. impeachment into just a tool of a majority in the house of representatives that's a very dangerous precedent but the democrats have established it now if you control the house you control the ability to impeach a president on no information on no Mm -hmm. evidence uh and that's destructive of democracy that's destructive of a presidency and you know the future that's the precedent
3: right and so now we have you know Biden in 2020 and we have this russia ukraine thing going on um how do you think uh, do you, how do you think a trump presidency would have prevented or handled that differently and what do you think the go forward plan should be as far as that
2: well there wouldn't have been a, an invasion of ukraine if trump was reelected there's no doubt in my mind about that. When you look at the the events as they happen, you have to go back to 2014. Um and uh, and when Biden, when when Putin invaded Crimea and took over Crimea, and the the Obama White House basically just slapped him on the wrist and then moved on as if it was nothing. And then they destabilized eastern Ukraine. Uh, to setting up a, uh, a provisional government on duly elected property, uh, the property of Ukraine, Putin understood, got away with it. When Obama wouldn't provide lethal weapons to help Ukraine during that crisis, Putin understood what that meant. When Trump came in, the first thing he did was he gave the lethal weapons that Ukraine wanted that Obama wouldn't give that sent a signal. Trump also let Biden, uh, Putin know, look, I respect what you have to do as your as president in Russia, something the media never understood. Respecting somebody's doing what they're doing versus approving of what they're doing are two different things. Uh, but don't violate certain lines. And one of the lines is you don't invade democracies. And, uh, and, and Putin didn't. Biden gets elected brings the same foreign policy team of Obama into, the, into his government, different positions, but the same team. Putin sees that. He then sees the, the fiasco in Afghanistan. He, say, he sees Biden saying, I'm not giving you any more lethal weapons so the lethal weapons stop flowing. And Putin said, okay, I'm back to where I was in 2015. I, can, I know what I can do. And he did it. And he warned everybody. He warned for six months before he invaded. He was letting them know he was going to do it. He was moving the troops in the right position everything else. Nothing, no pressure back, no push back, anything. Uh, and then when the moment happened, the, whatever his agenda time was, he invaded. And the only, the, the only surprise to Putin was nothing that Biden did. It's how the Ukrainian people defended themselves. Because Putin didn't understand something, which I did, frankly, because of all the polls I did in Ukraine. Putin thought that because half of the country is Russian ethnic, that if he invaded, they would all just fall into line. Mm -hmm. But he didn't understand that, yes, that part of Ukraine, the eastern part, you know, was Russian ethnic. They wanted to protect their language. They wanted to protect their culture. They wanted to protect the Russian Orthodox religion. But they also wanted to protect their freedom. And they knew the difference between freedom under Russia and freedom in in Ukraine, uh, where they they were truly free. Uh, And so they resisted with a fierceness that didn't surprise me. Uh, it surprised Biden because he didn't understand Ukraine. Um, it, it surprised a lot of Europe, not the Poles. The Poles understood it, actually. And they were in the front line of defense for uh, for the Ukrainians in, that, in those early days, which was very important, and put the pressure on Germany to do what I think uh, Putin was surprised about when Germany came out way stronger than the United States in defense of the Ukrainian people. So when you look at it in that context, mm-hmm. if Trump was president, there wouldn't have been any Ukraine. Invasion, um, and Ukraine would become a part, becoming be, be part of of Europe. My concern right now is, I think the Ukrainian people can win the war, but I worry that they're going to lose the peace uh, because the fatigue level is very high now in the West. Uh, the media is, you know, not even covering it very much right now. It's been relegated to the bottom front page or the second and third pages, and uh, you know, late in the news. But Putin understands all of that. Mm-hmm. So he's changed his tactics. He's been incrementally taking over, you know, the eastern part of the borders of Ukraine. We, the weapons still haven't gotten to Ukraine. I mean, they're, they're, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and he will then sue for peace. And the West will jump, jump into that. And, uh, and when they do, Putin is going to try and gain some of the concessions that he couldn't get on the battlefield, including have the borders of Ukraine change. Uh, and giving Putin the access to the Black Sea that, that he doesn't mm-hmm. have, um, and then so that's my concern. And uh, Biden can bark as much as he wants, but he has no bite. Putin knows it.
3: Mm-hmm. So my last question before we let folks know where they can, uh, when and where they can buy the book is: you know, you've served under quite a few administrations, um, and, and you've been in politics a, a long time. What do you think are the main changes in the style of governance under Democrats and Republicans since that time?
2: Well, the biggest change is we, you know, Democrats and Republicans used to be able to disagree and still, you know, work together. We're not, they're not able to work together right now. Um, and, And that's a very dangerous thing for the future. I mean, gerrymandering has allowed both sides to elect their most uh, fervent uh, uh, members. Uh, but it's, I mean, and I, I say this from a partisan standpoint, but Republicans still always show the willingness to cooperate. I remember Reagan saying to me once, and he used to talk about this actually, that, uh, you know, we fight I fight Tip O'Neill every day. He was the Speaker of the House, Democrat Speaker, a very partisan Democrat, uh, very much, very liberal to Reagan's conservatism, But at the end of the day, Every now and then Tip comes over and we have a drink and we talk about uh, sports and things like that. And that was the attitude back then. Um, it's not the attitude today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and my fear is, I mean, I think the, the left and the Democratic Party, they don't care that they're going to get wiped out. The party's going to get wiped out this November, because I think the AOCs of this world see that in a plurality of Democrats in the House. The woke left part is going to have a disproportionate impact on that uh, on that caucus, and this is part of a long term game to them. I mean, taking over control of the Democratic caucus in the House and ultimately in the Senate is a prelude to them to then their next step of trying to take over the government. They they try to do that with Biden, but he's inept. He's incapable of, of implementing their agenda, mm-hmm. and uh, and there's enough. You know, there are two important Democrats who have kept the institution from destroying itself. And uh, and so they've got to retool their strategy, which they're doing. And that's why you're seeing, I think, the discarding of Biden now in the media and by democratic politicians, his usefulness is over Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they've moved on. So that's the biggest change is the ability of the parties to try and deal with the national interest versus their own partisan interest. And it's principally driven by the left who wants nothing to do with compromise and only wants victory.
3: All right. Um, so where can people, uh, when and where can people buy the book um, and keep up with what you're doing with, 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 your future?
2: Well, the book is available August 16th. It's, uh, in, it'll be in the bookstores, but it's available for pre-order today at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Simon and Schuster. Uh, and, you know, I'll be getting out on the, on the campaign trail, so to speak, uh, talking about the book and, uh, and we will be getting active in the social media which I'm sure will light up uh, Twitter uh, uh, with uh, some of the more colorful, hated hatred uh, that the left imposes upon me, but so be it. Uh, but I'll also be on places like Wimkin and, and Truth and social things like
3: that. All right. Don't get banned too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thank you.
2: Not, Paul. I can't feel guilty about being banned for the truth.
3: <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate right. your time.
2: Thank you. Good to see you. oh, 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 oh